0: startup exits are the most sought after events in silicon valley but very few people get to experience them welcome to the startup exits podcast where we chat with founders that started ran and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down this podcast is brought to you by startup soft Hey, everybody, this is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by Ravid Eldred. Good morning, Ravid.
1: Good morning, Andrew.
0: You started uh, a company called Minerva back in the 1980s. Uh, This was a consulting firm that was primarily focused on the oil and gas industry. Uh, This was in Calgary, Canada. Uh, You grew this company from zero to 250 employees. You became the first Canadian partner of Microsoft, won a bunch of prestigious awards. And after 12 years, you sold the company for close to $30 million in cash. Uh, And all of this was without any sort of outside investment or debt. Uh, So I think if I left it at that, you would have been a great guest for the show. Uh, But to me, you are a very special guest. So we don't talk a lot about uh, ourselves, uh, ourselves, meaning myself and my brother and our story on this podcast or our career. Uh, But my brother, Alex, and I, we have been working on startups and different businesses for the past uh, close to 10 years almost. And for the first almost five years, it was just failure after failure after failure. Uh, lots of that without any sort of success in sight. And you were in many ways, I want to say the first person that really believed in us. You were the first investor that we've ever had. And you were the first advisor that has been advising us ever since we've met, including this podcast. And I think it's, it's safe to say that without you, we probably wouldn't be where we are now. So very happy to have you on the show, Rabbit. And I want to start off by going back to the part of your life before you started Minerva, before you got into business and in tech. Um, you've spent the past 40, maybe close to 50 years now in Canada, but you are from England. Uh, how was your upbringing like?
1: Um, it, it, it wasn't an upbringing that really set me up to be an entrepreneur. I was um, one of three kids raised by a single mother in England just after World War II. And so we sure didn't have much money and there was lots of rationing and things. And I was kind of, I grew up in an environment that said, get a good education, then get a good job, and then stay in that job for the rest of your life. And so that was sort of ingrained into my brain. Um, It was also in conflict with the fact that I was never much of one to take orders from anybody. And I always sort of thought in the back of my mind, one day I'd like to have my own business. But then I guess everybody has that thought in some ways. and so. I grew up, I was actually very lucky in some respects, I I got a pilot's license when I was very young, at the age of 16. And that was with a um, sort of a grant from the Royal Air Force. And it meant obviously that psychologically, I was conditioned now to join the Royal Air Force as soon as I graduated school, which I did. I went to the Royal Air Force Technical College and they then sent me to university in Birmingham. And as might well be expected, It only only lasted two years. And I suddenly realized one day I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life saluting a bunch of people I didn't particularly respect. So I dropped out of that and um, fiddled around a little bit doing odd jobs here and there, selling encyclopedias door-to-door, stuff like that. And finally, I answered an ad for trainee programmers at a service bureau in London. And I got that job and never looked back. you know I've, I've been in the tech business ever since, so it was in nineteen sixty six just maybe late sixty five or sixty six I first started programming, which it is interesting because there are still some aspects of programming that haven't changed, and there are some aspects today which of course are totally and utterly different but that was my background of- I got into the tech business
0: what sort of programming are we talking about in the 1960s like what was it computers? What kind of computers? What, what, what were you programming, really?
1: Um, well, the first thing I programmed was a thing called a Univac 1004, and that was a plug program. Like, you see the pictures of women from that era um, plugging in telephone exchange mm-hmm. wires all over the place, um, and that was how we programmed the 1004. We, we actually had to sort of sit and figure out a program logic the same way you do today, But then the actual programming consisted of running a whole bunch of um, wire connections from A to B in such a way that it followed what was, in essence, a very simple program. Um, I then, the second one I did was much more like real programming today. It was on an IBM 1130 Mm -hmm. that was being used for a process control for controlling a gold mine in South Africa. And it was one of the very first automated produ- mine production applications in the world. And that was just straight programming. It was all assembler language, but it was exactly the same as programming in assembler language today. What was
0: the tech industry in general back then? Like, was it, was it even considered a tech industry?
1: Um, a great way to kill a conversation was to say I was a programmer. <laughs> but the the computer had, it was becoming pretty much ubiquitous in, in companies. You know, big companies particularly mm-hmm. were, you know, buying, um, IBM, specifically computers, um, the old IBM 360 series, the 1400 series and the 360, 370 series. And the demand for programmers, particularly ones that could use commercial application commercial languages like COBOL um, and PL1 were growing quite fast so it, it was definitely the beginning of the commercial computer business as opposed to the military which is sort of where computers had grown up
0: mhm so nowadays programmers it's a programming is a, is a very lucrative job was it like that in the 1960s
1: um, it wasn't particularly lucrative i think my my salary before I came to Canada. So in 1968, I was earning a little bit under a thousand pounds a year, which I think the pound was about five dollars back then. So I was making about five thousand dollars a year. It wasn't a bad salary, but it certainly wasn't, you know, a particularly generous one. Mm-hmm. When I came to Canada, I made nine thousand four hundred and eighty-three dollars a year. I can always remember that number <laughs> in the job because. It's not. It's almost a prime number, and I figure, how did they come up with a number like that? Um, for is it monthly or weekly or what? But anyway, um, that to me was almost like a, you know, very nearly ten thousand dollars a year. Wow! I doubled my salary. Um, I guess by by normal standards at the time, they were pretty good salaries. Um, I think today it's it's not that much different for average programmers. I mean. You spend a lot of your time in the bay area and silicon valley and there of course salaries for top engineers have gone totally through the roof and so does the cost of living so maybe it all works out
0: before i was going to ask what was the reason why you came from uk to canada but you know the the jump from one thousand to nine something thousand makes it pretty obvious when when you No, came, no you...
1: that wasn't the reason what was um, the reason? It was a byproduct of it. The reason was interesting. I've always wanted to go to the States. I've always wanted to go to California, or I, I had always wanted. And I'd been there um, on a vacation. Despite us not having much money, my sister had become an air hostess with Pan Am. And she got me a flight to San Fran- from London to San Francisco and back for I mean, 10% of the normal ticket price. So I, I, I'd been there and spent a few weeks there. And decided this was really where I wanted to live my life, and so when I got back to England, I applied for several jobs in the uh, what is now Silicon Valley. And in fact, I was offered a job with a company called Ampex in Redwood City, um, outside San Francisco. There, or outside San Jose, I guess, and it was. That job fell through only because the U.S. government changed all its immigration regulations on July the 1st, 1968, a date that will be forever engraved in my heart. Mm -hmm. I'd had everything, um, all my application, I'd had my interviews, I'd had my medicals, I'd gone through all the tests that I had to go through. All I had to get was one more brief interview, and I was set to move to the States and because they changed the regulation, my interview was scheduled for something like July the 9th. Because they changed the regulations on July the 1st, it meant I had to go to the back of the line behind tens of thousands of you know, other Europeans looking to immigrate, emigrate. And um, so it fell through. Ampex, actually, they sent me a check for a couple of thousand dollars or something with an apology how it had been wasting my time or words to that effect. I can always remember that because I thought oh, God, the streets really are paved with gold. These people sent me a check for my expenses and my trouble, hmm. equal to approximately what my annual salary was. Hmm. Anyway, I, I then only because I really had got myself psyched up to leave England and emigrate. I thought maybe I'll try Canada because, in the view of many Brits back then, Canada was kind of like the fifty-first state, mm-hmm. and I figured once I. Canada. I could stay there for a while, then move to the States. That was why I answered an ad by the Canadian government and you know was offered the job and moved. The doubling of salary was just a byproduct of that. I didn't complain, but it was just a byproduct. I was going to move anywhere. I wanted to get out of England.
0: So towards the end of the 1960s, you came to Canada. You spent the 1970s uh, working as an engineer. And sometime, I guess in the mid-1980s, you started Minerva, uh, what made you want to start a company?
1: A couple of things. As I said a few minutes ago, I, I I always had this feeling that I'd like to own my own business. And I found myself, I was working for this consulting company that most of the senior people were ex-IBM, and I'd never worked for IBM. And IBM was a high culture company, and these people had a, a sort of a special language that they spoke to each other. That if you'd never worked at IBM, you could never really penetrate and understand that language. It sounds stupid, but I don't know how to explain it. But anyway, I was doing reasonably well with them. I was a sort of a mid level manager. I was making, I don't know, 80 grand a year, which was a pretty good salary in 1985. Um, And I saw they hired a guy in the same office I was in. I was in the Calgary office. They hired a fellow ex IBM who really was. A dumbbell. He he was he was not good at anything I could tell except sucking up to his boss. And he rocketed up the corporate ladder <laughs> right past me, like a rocket to the moon, you know, being promoted here and promoted there. And I thought, this is nuts. I'm I'm five times as good as this guy. And yet I'm I'm gonna be stuck here as the middle manager forever. Mm-hmm. So one day I just upped and quit. And I didn't really have any huge great plans. I thought, well, maybe I'll write a book or do something. I'd spent a bit of time on the speaking circuit, so I had things I could talk and write about. But, you know, I suppose after about six months of, of sitting, twiddling my thumbs, wondering what to do with myself, um, I finally decided that the the IBM PC had been out a few years before this. I think it was 1982 or something it came out. and and So it was being used a lot, being acquired a lot in large corporations, the people I'd been working with, the IBM shops. And um, there was a growing market for training people in how to use PCs. And I decided that, that the trainers were awful. The people doing the training, even the good ones, were not very good. And so I thought, I'm going to start a really good professional training company. And we'll really do this properly teach people how to use these little machines Hmm. and that was why I called it Minerva. Minerva was the Roman goddess of wisdom and I thought that's a nice appropriate name for somebody and and so I literally found myself um, sitting there doing spreadsheets and you know cash flow spreadsheets running around talking to people about you know if I had a training company would you give me your business how much would you pay that kind of thing and so that was what Minerva was originally intended to do, as I say, I kind of backed into it because I was in a snit that this guy had been you know, promoted way past me, and I realized I wasn't going anywhere there. So I became an entrepreneur in some ways for all the wrong reasons. Most entrepreneurs have a vision and sit down and follow it through. I didn't. I just got my knickers in a knot and um, <laughs> backed into trying to start a training company. And then wasn't very long after doing that, I realized this was a really bad move. I could not make money training.
0: So how did you eventually switch from training to consulting for the oil and gas industry?
1: I well I was already the oil and gas industry was only because we were in Calgary. Calgary is an oil and gas town. Right. And it, it's almost like being in Houston or something like that. And so we didn't we didn't specialize in the oil and gas industry because I decided that was what I wanted to do. We specialized in it because 9 out of every 10 of our customers was in that business. Um, what we specialized in was PCs. And this is back in the days when there, were, there was not a lot of programming capability available for PCs. The, what was happening was in, in a lot of big corporations with central IBM mainframes, a lot of their end users were not particularly happy with the arrangement because to get anything done, they had to go through the central IT department. And IT departments were not known for their customer focus or flexibility, but they were known for you know, how to operate MVS and how to write COBOL programs and things. So the customers, their customers, the internal customers, started buying these funny little IBM PCs because that way they could do a lot of stuff on their own and they could you know, produce, do spreadsheets, do word processing and so on. And some of them started networking these things together, three or four of them in an office. And then they decided they needed help programming them, writing applications, because, back, again, back then, there wasn't a huge amount of software available that has happened since then, you know, software packages. So they would go to the IT department and say, we want you to you know, develop an application for us on these little things. And the IT department would say we can't do that because we have no idea how to use products like DBase and you know some of the um, programming languages that were available for PCs back then. So they would go outside, and there were people offering programming skills on a consulting basis. They were mostly young, for obvious reasons. They were mostly young people who had. Got into these computers, mini computers as they were, and taught themselves to program them, which caused a problem. Because now you had people in big companies with IT departments having their systems developed by young guys who knew everything in the world there was to know about the PC, but absolutely nothing about the big company or the corporate culture or the need to network or the need to maintain systems. And so it was a lot of friction between some of the people that were buying PCs and their IT departments. So I had spent my time before that. The company I was working for specialised, as I said, they were all ex-IBM Our clients, all ran mainframes. I was focused on the PC because I liked it. So I started saying to people, "Look, I'm—I was 42 then. I'm, you know, I'm, I, by, by some standards, I'm an old fart. I've been." Working with you guys, I understand the issues that an ID department faces. Um, I can hire these young kids. They know how PCs work. I can make them hum. I can make them produce great applications for you. But I also understand how this application has to fit into your corporate network, and it has to meet your corporate standards, and it has to be maintainable by your own in-house people. And that was a very, very unique positioning. And it, it turned out it was that was one of the smartest things I ever did because it gave instant credibility. People knew me; they were comfortable talking to me. They knew that I knew their culture and the technology going on in the IT departments, and they had confidence that I could hire young kids who could write programs but make them in a way that were documented and maintainable.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you you spoke the language. Of your target audience, and uh, you understood the problem because of the prior experience. How did you find your first client, and how did you close them?
1: My very first client actually was a personal friend. He was, he was our company's lawyer. He was the guy that set the company up. It's a good um, place to start. He also he he was a lawyer, but he owned a meat pl- packing business. It was a sort of a family thing, and he needed someone to develop a whole bunch of. Um, excel spreadsheets for him so he just said to me one day here i'll be your first customer find me somebody to do this so i did and we did actually she worked in his offices there for almost 18 months just churning out spreadsheets for the meatpacking business the first client i got that was not a personal friend was somebody i knew he was somebody i'd worked with in mobile oil who are now part of Exxon, um, but back then they were separate. And I I made a, a sales call to him and told him what we did and that kind of stuff. And then a few weeks later, my phone rang and it was him just saying, "Hey, um, I need three people to work on a project team to do such and such. Can you get them?" So I said, "Oh yeah, no problem." Hang up the phone and start frantically <laughs> trying to find people to
0: do the work so one of the things that you've um you've taught alex and i uh quite a lot about is how to sell and one of the things that's really kind of ingrained in my head is um which we got from you is to never sell in the first meeting right is to really break the whole sales process down into different parts and really understand uh, what is the purpose of each part and what you're trying to to, uh, to achieve out of it uh, why is it important to break sales into different, um, to different parts?
1: Um, I'm not sure I'd say it's important to break it into different parts. It, it's more just the fact that a sale of a technology solution almost certainly is a series of different sales. You, very, very few salespeople are going to walk into a customer on a cold call Whatever it is they're selling, whether they're selling computers or software or or custom applications or anything, very few of them are going to walk in and then walk out with an order. It just doesn't happen that way. And selling becomes a series of steps. I mean, you know, there are plenty of books have been written about this. And you have to know what each step is in order to know what you're trying to accomplish. One of the problems I found that... A lot of salespeople had that they did wrong was they would go into a meeting without a really clear idea of what they were trying to accomplish in that meeting if If you say, well actually a good example is applying for a job uh, this is not it, it's selling a different kind of selling. If you're applying for a job, you'll very often produce a CV a resume of your background and your skills, and you'll send it you'll email it to whoever it is that you're trying to impress and you you have to realize that the purpose of that resume is not to get a job you're not you're not going to be hired based on the resume i mean one time in a thousand you may be but but you're not going to be hired then you're going to be hired after you've had some kind of an interview with somebody Mm -hmm. therefore purpose of the resume is not to get the job it's to get the interview once you realize that's what your resume is for then you can structure the resume in such a way that it maximizes your chances of getting an interview. Same thing when you're making a sales call. When I was making sales calls, I first started making sales calls for Minerva. I would call a mid-level manager in the IT department. Usually, they had somebody who was responsible for system development, let's say. And I would meet with him or her and ask a lot of questions about what they did and what their issues were and what their problems were, and then a little bit, I would just run through some of the services that we did. Now, that was in many ways totally dreaming because I'd say, you know, we can do this and we can do that and we can do the other. And in point of fact, we couldn't do any of them, but I knew that if I got a job, I could find the people that could. So um, I was, let's say, flexible in terms of some of the skills that we offered. But I knew that I wasn't going to walk out of that meeting with an order. What I wanted was to walk out of the meeting with the other person having understood what we do so that I could then keep in touch with them. And when the opportunity arose for some real work, then I could go on and go into the next stage of the sales pitch, which might have been producing a proposal or putting together some resumes or whatever it was. So it's not that I say you have to split stuff into different stages, it's that that's the reality of how the world works when you're trying to sell something.
0: Yeah, and I think for, for B2B, uh, like enterprise sales, some of these cycles could even be years, right? From the moment you meet the person and like you said, they understand really what it is that you do by the time they actually, um, they, they engage you on some sort of project could be years. Um
1: uh, one One of my favorite sayings is to stay visible, stay close once you've Once you've made your initial contact they'll they'll forget about you quite quickly. so you have to stay visible. and this has become actually a a pain in the butt for many of us today because you make one inquiry about something today online and you then get battered with daily emails telling you there's a special on this and special on that. And so the, the, the business of staying visible, staying close, has been carried to a, a silly extreme in many cases. Back then, um, you know, there, there, was, there was an internet, but it wasn't used anywhere near like it is today. Um, so staying visible and staying close was a challenge. We actually we had a, a newsletter that we used to, a physical newsletter we used to mail out once a month. And so whenever I'd had a meeting with somebody, I'd give them a copy of it, the latest copy, and I'd say, you know, do you mind if I put you on the mailing list for this? They never did because it was an excellent newsletter that talked about all sorts of tips and hints for running PCs. And when I say it was excellent, I'm not blowing my own trumpet because we actually bought it. There was a guy in the States who produced these and then he, he sold them to companies like us and um, personalized each batch so that ours looked like they were coming from Minerva Technology. Although they were actually produced by one guy sitting, for all I know, sitting in his grandmother's basement in Boise, Idaho. I have no idea where he was.
0: Did people ever ask? Like if you guys were the ones that make them?
1: Um, yeah, I think once or twice, and well, I was always quite honest about it. You know, it <laughs> be ashamed. there was one client once who said, that's interesting, when I gave him a copy of the thing reached in his desk and he produced another one, an identical copy from a different company. And um, that, that was a screw up because the, the deal that was made with the fellow who produced it all was that he'd never have a second customer in the same geographical area. But this fellow had, I don't know, he got it from somebody in San Diego or something. Um, but that was the only time we ever had any kind of, and even then we just laughed about it.
0: At what point did you realize that you're actually running a successful business so you you um, you mentioned that you started off with your first client was a friend, then you got your second client and um, just because you have clients coming in I mean it's, it's, it, at a new business for the first couple of years is probably still a lot of pain um, so was there a particular point in Minerva's history where you realized like um, that you're actually running something that could be pretty big
1: um yeah, I had to go the other way first after we'd been in business for I think we'd been going for about 18 months, and I had six people out there working for clients, which makes you, you know, when I think back on it, it was a pretty long, slow process. We weren't, by no means, we'll we an instant success, an overnight success. Um, and in, it, I forget, I think it was 19, late 1986 or 87, the local economy in Calgary took a real hit. I don't recall why, but we had five of the six people that we had working, all had their contracts cancelled in one week. So I went from six people to one um, in in space of a week, yeah. and that was a wake-up call for me. That you know, it never crossed my mind to pack it in, but it, it sure made me realise that you know you don't make a million dollars in a month in this business, and. I think it was once we recovered from that, maybe a year later, when we, I think we probably had 15 or 20 people working by that point. I think that was when I sort of rather slowly realized, I think we've got a real company here. And real company is a phrase I use a lot um, these days when I'm talking to young entrepreneurs, yeah. I have this theory that you 're a real company when your revenues are over a million dollars a year it's still a small company but you 're a real company eighty five thousand bucks a month whatever um, until that point you're a startup and you 're struggling hmm. once you get up to that million dollars a year now you 're a real company and even you can, you can still screw things up and go bankrupt after that but at least now. You're a business. You're not just a person trying to build a business.
0: I would have thought you you would say that it was at a point where you became the, the first Canadian partner of Microsoft, and you were also ranked by Microsoft as one of top three uh, worldwide partners for for several years. How was it like to work with Bill
1: Gates? Um, interesting. The the most of the work I did then actually was with the um, manager of Microsoft Canada, who originally were just a sort of a a fairly small sales operation out of Toronto. Um, But because it was so new, the whole idea of uh, Microsoft having partners, I was invited to sit on their, I forget what they call it, Guidance Council or something like that. And so I had a a number of trips down to Redmond. And um, they were ones where on most of them, Bill was a part of at least a meeting. We'd get together. I think there were sort of, six or seven of us, if I remember correctly, I was the one from Canada, and the, the others were all from the States. And we'd just sort of sit down and and um, troubleshoot and, and, you know, try to think of ideas of how to make partnership work better, and let people know what our interests were, and they would let us know what their interests were. And Bill was always a part of that for some period of time. He might He might have been in there for an hour, he might have been in there for two or three hours. Um, the he, He's not somebody that wastes time on small talk. Uh, you know, he, he wants to get down to business. And he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. That, that sort of oozes from him. And he can get really very quickly down to the nub of any issue, whether it's a technical issue or whether it's a business issue. He, very, very impressive in that respect. Um, and I personally, I found it a joy working with him because, you know, I, I really respect people who are hugely intelligent and get on with the job. Um, Steve Ballmer was in a couple of the meetings. Steve was much more. He's. It's easy to dismiss Ballmer because he's such a showman. Um, he, he's also very, very smart. But I... I didn't have the same respect for him because he was just the sales side of the business. And all he wanted to do was increase sales of Microsoft products. So his whole focus was the partners should be moving Microsoft product. And we didn't sell any product. So it was difficult for for me to sort of feel a lot of empathy with that um, particular approach to things. But, you know, he was okay. I didn't... I didn't see him as much or get to know him anywhere near as well.
0: Besides uh, working with Microsoft, you guys uh, were recipients of uh, several pretty prestigious awards at that time. Uh, You were ranked twice uh, one of the Canada's 50 top fastest growing businesses. And I think in the early 90s, you were a winner of a Canada Award for Business Excellence. So that's for Minerva. And you personally were um, awarded Calgary's business person of the year not sure what year that was um so after running minerva for 12 years eventually you sold the company for close to 30 million dollars how did that whole process go Uh, how did you meet the acquirer how was the negotiation like uh was there one acquirer was there multiple acquirers uh talk to me a little bit more about that
1: um we were had no i had no plans to sell the company i I mean i had it in the back of my mind that yeah one day it might be nice to sell this and to cash in. But I had no plans to do anything in the near term the future. And however, I was pretty stressed. Um, I've always been a leader in, in the sense that I've always been able to articulate a vision and get other people to buy into that vision. But I've never been a good manager. Um, it has been noted that I would have problems managing my way out of an outdoor biffy. But whether that's the case or not, I, I wasn't. Um, I wasn't keen on the management role. I had hired a president, and he he did fairly well. But he he started changing the culture a lot. So I I um I wanted to demote him, move him into a different job. But he said no, so he quit. So I was back to running the whole company. And one day, right out of the blue, we were approached by a venture capital group who had this theory, and their theory was that if you had a technology company like ours doing $100 million a year, you could float an IPO with a value, let's say, of X dollars per share. If you took the same company when it was only a third as big and floated an IPO, The value would not be X dollars over three per share. It would be X over six. In other words, it would be a lot less. And they thought that 100 million a year in revenue was a sweet spot. But they wanted to buy companies for X over six, merge them into $100 million a year business, and then do an IPO at X and make all their money that way. And what they wanted, they wanted to buy half of Minerva. Um, half the shares. They already had a company in Montreal that they had the same arrangement with. They bought half the shares. They were looking at two or three other companies. To get the third one, and that would have given a combined total of 100 million a year. I'd said, "Yeah, I'm interested in listening to this." And they'd done their own valuation of us, and they valued us at, i can't remember what it was. They valued us at, frankly, but we—I was prepared to go along with this because it would give me a little bit of cash right away, and I would still own half the company. And if I believed their numbers when when we went public in a few years' time, um, you know, I'd get the other half. However, we were one week away from signing a deal with them, literally one week away, when I got a phone call from somebody who said he wouldn't give me any idea who he was working for as a consultant of some sort. But he said he had a client that was looking to buy a technology company that understood oil and gas software and understood the oil and gas business. Did I know of anybody? So I laughed and I said, <laughs> I love your approach. Um, but I said, we're, we're, you know, we're very close to doing a deal with these other people. So he said, well, I'll tell my, I'll tell my client and they can get back to you. A couple of hours later, I got another phone call. And this time it was from the president of Newfoundland Telephone. And he said, well, I'm the client and we would like to talk with you before you make your deal. So I said, well, if you can get your asses down here in a hurry, I'm happy to talk. And they duly sent three of their executives down next day. And we set them up in the boardroom and gave them all the information they wanted. And they said, we were not quite ready to make an offer, but it was, now the, it was now my deadline for the other guys. So I had to call the other guys and say, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I need another three days here. And anyway, within those three days, the Nufis came back with an offer, which was slightly more than double what the first ones that had us value that. So I thought, hmm, this is difficult. It took me somewhere between two and three seconds to say, "Yeah, okay." I mean, I think I think I I made some muttering noises and said something about, it, but I was rather hoping, for that. and you know, I squeezed a little bit more out of them. But basically, I was bowled over because I I had it in my mind that we were worth fifteen million or whatever it was. that The guys were going to give me seven of that and then get half the company, and these other fellows came along and said, "No, you're worth double that." So that was, that was how we got to make the sale.
0: I think if maybe if you waited another week, who knows who might have came knocking.
1: Um, I don't know, but when somebody, it's, it's like winning the lottery, you know, you, there's no way you're going to say, no, take it back. I may win more next month.
0: <laughs> um, how was it to take that almost $30 million check and deposit it at the bank? Because that, that wasn't, you probably got it as a check and had to deposit, right? It didn't come in as a wire or anything like that?
1: It, it was a check, and that was a good thing about the sale too. There were no conditions to it. there was nothing to do with a future IPO. It was a straight cash sale. You know if you sell us the company, we'll write you a check. and they did Now it, it, my personal amount wasn't quite that because we'd had a, a share, per, a share a purchase plan a, a share plan for key employees for some time. so my my share of the thing was something under three quarters. But anyway, yeah, it was funny. When I went to deposit the check at the bank, I also had two other checks. I can't remember what they were for. One of them was a, a refund or something from somewhere or other. And one of them was, uh, I don't know, a check for a couple of hundred dollars. Anyway, I, I went into the bank and duly went up to the cashier and gave her the three checks and said, I want to pay these in. And she looked at the first one and stamped it with the rubber stamp they have and went clackety-clack on the keyboard. Looked at the second one, snap, clackety-clack on the keyboard. Looked at the third one, paused for a second, (laughs) stamp, back on the keyboard, looked at me and said, well, I don't suppose I have to wish you a good day then, do I?
0: (laughs) I think anybody who's... Who's been involved in in running companies probably fantasized about this exact moment I, I don't think now when companies get bought i uh, you know they, they, I would imagine they don't they don't write checks anymore it's probably it comes out of wire so um, if you sold Minerva now, an hour i don't think you you would have had to go to a bank to deposit it so probably wouldn't have't wouldn't have had a chance to have that moment what was the f- the first big thing that you purchased after the after the acquisition after that deposit
1: uh. Well, the the first things we spent some of that money on was not actually purchasing stuff, but my mother was on her own and my wife's mother was on her own. So we set up a couple of um, trust funds for them. So they had a sort of a guaranteed income. Um, Our two daughters were getting to college age. So we set up trust funds for both of those. So they'd be able to go through university and everything there. I Then I paid off my mortgage, of course. Um, then we went out well actually then we went and bought a corvette a convertible corvette just as a plaything. then we got serious and went and bought a boat we 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 had uh, when i say we i had always wanted to sail around the world and my wife had sort of joined in on this i'm not sure it was her idea but she joined in quite enthusiastically so we went and we spent time, we flew to London to go to the London Boat Show. We went to a boat show in Boston somewhere. Went to a boat show in Vancouver. Anyway, round and round, and we finally finished up buying a boat um, in Vancouver, a 45-foot sailboat. And we took it across to Vancouver Island, and it stayed there for the summer. And we, we spent the summer driving from Calgary out to Vancouver Island, which is like a day, a couple of days' drive. Um, in the Corvette, of course you know top down, and then spend a couple of weeks on the boat and then we' drive back home again, spend a couple of weeks at home we going around and surf we spent the whole summer doing this getting to know the boat, um, having a bunch of equipment put on it so that it was liverboardable and then we had it shipped down to Miami and finally we went and picked it up in Miami and sailed across to the Bahamas and down and all the way down through the Caribbean and right down to Trinidad, back again, round in circles. We spent a couple of years doing that.
0: So after Minerva, you and Sean, you, you started a, a, a commercial, realist, uh, commercial offices company called Athens, um, and... Uh, The crazy thing is if you repeated this Minerva story with a boat and kind of sailing for a couple of years, uh, you could have very well started another company now if you had done this uh, while on that boat. It probably wouldn't be possible back then because of, you know, lack lack of Internet connection and and all that. But now, I mean, if you did that, you could very well sail and and start a new company online. Um, I want to end off by asking some forward thinking questions. So you've been involved in tech since the 1960s. Could have you anticipated then or uh, maybe in the 1970s just how important and how life-changing technology and computers would become
1: um in some ways yes i didn't know how but i knew that it would happen i i mentioned earlier that i'd, I'd been on the rubber chicken circuit I'd been, i had been i spent some time um, Just before I started Minerva and again later on, just after I sold it, um, doing the circuit, talking about the future of computing. And the title of my talk was, You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. And my message was that with any new technology, companies grow up to support that technology. So for computers, companies were growing up making chips and making computer cabinets and that sort of stuff making software and so on then you get secondary companies in the industry which are companies that service the primary business but aren't actually part of it and then you get tertiary companies and with tertiary companies if you think about the automobile business when 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 automobiles first became popular around the time of the model T you had garages springing up and companies that were, you know, gas filling stations were springing up all over the place. But nobody would have thought of McDonald's. Hmm. Um, McDonald's has nothing whatever to do with automobiles, but it could never have existed without the automobile. And so my message to people was, it's the same with the computer business. We can foresee all sorts of businesses that spring up around it, like the consulting business, like people, the software business and so on. What we can't foresee is Facebook, I mean, which has nothing whatever to do with computers, but could not exist without it. And so I knew I knew that huge things were going to happen. I didn't have the faintest idea what they were. And in fact, I can say the same thing today. I, I know that there are going to be huge changes and differences. You know, one of your favorite ones, I believe, is, is augmented reality. Yeah, this is going to make big changes. But I don't know where and I don't know
0: how. Hmm. I think that another interesting concept is uh, technology is accelerating. So the change, uh, the, all the total, the total changes, I mean, even you can say more broadly to the world that we've seen for the past 60 years since the 1960s, uh, we're going to see many more of those changes and the magnitude of those changes is going to be much, much bigger in the next 60 years, right? So it's not linear. Um, so I am definitely with you. On, and I think you know, anybody that's at least some somewhat involved in tech wouldn't argue that we're going to see some crazy things over the next 60 years, but it's just a matter. I think there's a lot of debate of what exactly those those things are going to be. Um, you, or I mentioned this uh, a few questions ago. So, you and Sean, uh, you've started a um, a company that owned and rented out commercial offices called Athens, uh, that you guys sold. Uh, you, you've exited for um, a couple of years after that as well. Uh, so two exits that you, that you have under your belt. Um, now, since COVID, we're undergoing this um, this work from home movement. And I would love to get your thoughts on um, the topic of offices and work from home. And on one side, we see there's some people that are saying the office is dead. You know, all the companies are, everybody's going to be working from home. Uh, new startups are going to be fully distributed. And we are seeing some of that. And then on the other hand, some people are saying that uh, once this COVID thing is over, we're going to all go back to offices.
1: Where
0: Where are you between those two extremes?
1: Somewhere in the middle, um, the there has been a move towards virtual companies going on for you know, twenty years. Um, some companies lend themselves to that, and some don't. A lot of companies in our business, yours and mine, are candidates for that because you don't have to have people all working in the same office, and you particularly don't need it. When we have the number of tools that we have today, the the zooms and the Microsoft Teams and the Slacks and things like this, um, and so that's becoming more and more possible. The for some jobs, people have been sent to work home just because of COVID nineteen, but the, you know they're going to go back to offices again. Some people that could work from home are going to want to go back to offices because. It'll probably be emotional reasons rather than anything else. Plus, there's a, you know, a lot of validity to the claim that a bunch of people working together you know, can often come up with some of their best ideas when they're chatting around the water cooler, which, which doesn't happen when everybody's working from home. But there, is, there are going to be both. We are going to see companies which are totally virtual. We're going to see companies which are not virtual at all, where everybody has to work in an office for whatever reason, and we're going to see hybrid companies where they'll either have satellite offices or they will have some people working in offices, some people working from home. Or the one that I don't like is where they're trying to have some people working from home three days a week and in the office two days a week. I don't think there's much future for that.
0: Last question. When uh, when you and I met, so you and I and Alex, and um, this was several years ago. So at that point, we didn't meet through any sort of mutual connection. Uh, Alex sent you a message on Quora. You were quite active, quite active on Quora at that time, and you still are. Uh, so this was a cold, cold email, cold message. Uh, we were a group of we had some experience but it it would be a stretch to call us experienced uh certainly we didn't have any sort of track record any sort of success or anything like that under our belt uh we had a questionable idea in a very questionable market why did you invest in us um
1: alex sold me i mean i hadn't i hadn't met you i mean this is nothing nothing against you but i mean i alex was the first person i spoke with i was impressed with a couple of things i was impressed with the his perseverance, and yet he he persevered and bugged me, but didn't annoy me, and, and that impressed me. I thought, well, I, you know, I like this kid. I like the way he's, he's he's approaching this. I was also impressed with the fact that you'd had a couple of um, businesses that hadn't worked out. The almost every successful entrepreneur I know has failed at something, and. If I'm going to invest money, I'd much rather it be after you've failed in something else rather than failing with my money, you know. Um, and anyway, it really wasn't very much money. We, we weren't talking big dollars here. I just I liked him. and then, you know, he, I started uh, you know communicating with you as well. I liked you. I liked the fact that the two of you are quite different, but that you know Alex can focus on the numbers and the sort of managing the business side of things you can focus on. The marketing and doing stuff like this. I think it's a a good combination. I mean, sooner or later, you guys are going to hit it out of the park. It's just a case of when, not whether.
0: And we're certainly happy that you made a bet on us. And when I say that we wouldn't be where we are now without you, uh, I mean it. Thanks a lot for being on the show, Robert.
1: You're welcome. It's been a pleasure working with you.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by StartupSoft. To learn more, visit StartupSoft.org.